Um, we are in the Gospel of John. We started this kind of journey five weeks ago. It's taken us about five weeks to get through chapter one, but this morning we're going to wrap up chapter one in the Gospel of John, and we're actually going to talk a little bit about some of the things Brandon was talking about, how God intimately knows our heart and calls us to surrender to him. But the Gospel of John is an interesting gospel. I've mentioned this every time. It's different from the other three, which you call the synoptic gospels, because John, our gospel writer, has a different agenda. His agenda is not necessarily to give us a picture of the historicity of Jesus. His goal is not to show us necessarily the historical movements of Jesus as a person, but instead to introduce us to the deity of Jesus Christ. John wants us to know Jesus as God's son. And he's very intentional about it. And so his, his narrative is not so much about a chronological or historical order, but instead about introducing you to God in the flesh, the incarnation, the God who loves you and who came for you. And in John chapter 1, he does this really intentionally by painting this incredibly deep theological picture and introducing us into some really important relationships that are going to make a difference for the rest of his book for the rest of his letter. And we've talked about those theological nuances, Jesus as light and life and creator and all those things. And we've been introduced to John the Baptist. We've been introduced to Andrew and the unnamed disciple that we met last week, who most scholars believe is actually John, our gospel writer. Um, we met Peter Cephas, uh, who got a new name in the presence of Christ. And this morning, we're going to meet Philip and Nathaniel as Jesus calls two other men to come and follow him. And so what we have to keep in mind this morning is that as we look at this text, we're not so interested in the detailed picture of what's unfolding, but of what John is trying to do, which is to get us to understand that the God of the universe was so in love with humanity that he broke in from heaven and earth, stepped into this world to walk among us and to die so that we might know him. He wants you to meet Jesus, which makes my job as a preacher incredibly simple, right, with the gospel of John. I just want you to see Jesus. That's it. No fancy footwork, no misdirection, no smoke and mirrors, just see Jesus. So last week we were introduced to a couple of guys that began a process that's going to lead them to ultimately following Jesus and becoming his disciples. We're introduced to Andrew and an unnamed disciple who were actually disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness on the edge of the Jordan River baptizing people in the name of the coming of the kingdom of God and for repentance. And we've talked a lot about that over the past three weeks, what that means and what that looks like. But his job, John the Baptist's job, was to witness to the coming Messiah. That was it. John wasn't the Messiah. He was not the true light. His job was just to witness to the one that was coming, and that is Jesus. And last week we saw that as John was teaching and as he was explaining things to those that were around him, Jesus comes walking by and John says, look, there goes the Lamb of God. And Andrew and this other unnamed disciple, they get up and they follow Jesus, right? And Jesus stops and he looks at them and he says, what do you want? And they said, well, where are you going or where are you going to live or where are you abiding is the phrase that they use. And Jesus says, come and see. And he invites them back with him and he spends the entire day with them. And Andrew's heart is so deeply moved at the end of that day by what Jesus said or by his encounter with him or by the things that John the Baptist said that he, he immediately thinks, I need to go and get my brother Simon. I want my brother Simon to meet Jesus. I've got to have them meet. And so he rushes off and he gets Simon and he brings Simon back to Jesus. And as he's walking up, Jesus looks at him coming and he says, you are Simon, son of John, right? And he says, from now on, you will be called Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for rock. And the Greek word is Petros, which means rock, where we get Peter. And he says, this is your new name, Peter. You are going to be called rock. 
And we explored what that meant and ultimately how Peter's going to surrender his life as a fisherman and follow Jesus completely. And of course, Peter goes on to be the building block upon which the church is built. In fact, our two-year journey to the book of Acts, Peter was one of the central figures as the leader and movement of the church. Well, this morning we're going to see a similar interaction. Jesus is going to leave that area, he's going to head towards Galilee, and he's going to run into a couple of other guys. And he's going to give them a similar invitation, but what you and I are going to see this morning is that that invitation extends beyond come and follow me, but extends to the fact that Jesus knows us intimately. He calls us to come and follow him, to share this truth one-on-one, and ultimately the promise is that we will see greater and incredible things. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text together. God, I love you deeply. My life is a broken mess. I am sinful. Every one of us in this room is sinful and broken. We have made choices that have hurt. We have abandoned people. We have abandoned you. And yet, God, you love us anyway. You love us. You invite us into your presence. God, you sent Jesus to rescue us in all of our lack of perfection. The truth is, God, we brought all that stuff in here today. We brought our fears, our failures, our lack of trust, our inadequacy, our mediocrity, our lack of passion for you. We brought our guilt. We brought the fact that most of us are here with something else in mind, whether we we have to go after this or what we did last night or just the fact that we just feel like life is overwhelming at times. We all brought something. Yet, God, your promise is that you came and rescued us, not just rescued us from the burden of sin and death, but from the burden of life, that you've given us freedom. And so this morning, I pray, God, just for the next few moments, we can just lay it down. Whatever it is, lay it down at your feet. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask the Lord to remove whatever is burdening your heart. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's a distraction. Maybe it's just the fact that you're just here. Just ask God to to remove that and speak to you this morning. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. This morning is not just about you. We want people to encounter the risen Christ. And so just pray for them, even if you don't know their name. Pray that God would move in the person next to you this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to teach us. Lord, you reveal yourself to us. We don't discover you. So, Lord, teach us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take this lightly. God, we pray that you would show us who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the book of John, chapter 1, the last few verses, uh, 43 through 51 there. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 1. It's taken us five weeks, but John has done something very intentional. He has introduced us to the theological side of, the, of Jesus as Savior, Jesus as God's Son, and he's given us witness accounts to that truth. So he's given us John the Baptist, he's, given us, he's going to give us Philip and Nathaniel, he's given us Andrew and Peter, Simon who becomes Peter, and the unnamed disciple who we believe is actually the gospel writer. Those people are all witnesses to the theological truth that John has laid out there. That it's not just me saying that Jesus is the Savior. These are all people that have seen it and have had their lives changed by it. And so he is setting us up for the reality that will be kind of anchored in the rest of his gospel story. And kind of next week we're going to begin with some of the miracle movements 
of Jesus. But John is, is wrapping up his case for the deity of Christ, and he's going to introduce us to two more really important people. So let's take a look at John chapter 1, 43 through 51, and then we'll just kind of explore it together. The very next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, come and see, asked Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree Philip, before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven and earth open. And the angel of God, angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we see Jesus making this call to two more people that will eventually become his disciples, like Andrew and Simon. So after that encounter with Andrew and Simon um, and that unnamed disciple, Jesus gets up and our text tells us that he heads over to Galilee. Now, Galilee is a region on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's, it's actually a, kind of a, a larger area. And Jesus is heading over there. And we're going to find out in chapter 2 that he's going to do a miracle in Cana. He's going to change water to wine. And Cana is in the middle of Galilee. And so Jesus is on his way over there. And as he's on his way, it tells us that he found Philip. We don't know anything else about that inter interaction except that he found him and he looks at him and he says, follow me. We don't know if they spent a lot of time together or if Jesus explained a whole bunch of things, but we just have two words. And whatever was in those words or in that interaction was so moving to Philip that like Andrew, he felt the need to go and share whatever that was. Maybe it was those two words. Maybe it was much more significant than that. But whatever it was, that encounter with Jesus, whether it was the authority in his voice or whether they spent more time together, Philip has his heart deeply stirred, deeply stirred. In fact, once he says, follow me, right, he goes and he finds Nathaniel. Now, there's a lot of mystery surrounding Nathaniel. There's a bunch of different kind of ideas about this guy. Most scholars believe that Nathaniel is actually Bartholomew, who has mentioned the Synoptic Gospels as one of the disciples. And the reason for that is because every time he's mentioned in the Synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is also mentioned in connection with Philip. They're next to each other. They're always together. And so a lot of scholars believe that that's actually Nathaniel. Also, a lot of scholars believe that Nathaniel and Philip are brothers. Both are kind of speculative. But the point is, is that Philip has this incredibly important relationship with this person named Nathaniel, just like Andrew had with Peter. And Philip has his life so altered by this encounter with Jesus, right? This come and follow me that he thinks, I need to introduce him to Nathaniel. I want Nathaniel, whether he's my brother or my close friend, I want him to meet Jesus, which has the exact same rings and echoes of what we saw with Andrew and Peter. Andrew had his heart so stirred that he went to Peter and he said, Peter, we have found the Christ, the Messiah, right? Well, Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel and he tells him this, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and whom all the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he goes to Nathaniel and he says, we have found him. 
We have found the one that Moses talked about, the one the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the one. Whatever that interaction was with Jesus, it, it confirmed in Philip's heart that this was not just some random traveling rabbi, but that in fact he was the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that we've been talking about for the past four weeks. And Philip is convinced. And he looks at Nathaniel and he says, you've got to meet him, Right? And Nathaniel has this really interesting response where he says, Nazareth, right? Can anything good come out of there? Now, you got to understand a little bit of the backstory about Nazareth. I mean, the truth is, is that Galilee was actually a throwaway region in Judea. Uh, most of Judeans believe that Na- the people from Galilee were kind of, if you will, backwoods. They had a weird accent. Most of them were uneducated. And so most of the sort of aristocrats and the higher-ups that lived in and around Jerusalem and Judea, they believed that Galilee was kind of a toss-away. It was way out there. And those people were uneducated, and they were messy, and they were dirty and doing whatever. And the irony here is that Nathaniel is actually from Cana, which is right in the middle of Galilee, right? We learned that in John chapter 21, that, that Nathaniel's from Cana and Galilee. But Jesus is from Nazareth, which is also in Galilee. So both of these guys are from the same throwaway area. But what that tells us is that even in Galilee, there were some cities or some places that people looked at and said, oh, yeah, we may be bad, but, I mean, that place is dirty, right? Like, that is awful. And Jesus was from Nazareth. And so Nathaniel, being from Galilee, still says, oh, my gosh, like, ugh. Is anything possibly good come out of that forsaken, awful city? Which is really amazing if you think about it, right? Because here is Jesus, the Son of God, right? The God of the universe, the God that that hung the stars and made the trees and breathed life into your lungs. And it adds to the incredible narrative that the Son of God didn't show up in all these great robes in the right family, in the right areas, the right places of town, but he comes walking out of the most despised area of the most despised village to redeem the world, right? Really a fascinating narrative of what God is doing for you and what he's doing for me, that he walks out of essentially the dump, right? Culturally, the dump, where people are like, nothing good comes out of it. Even the people that are in that bad part of the country go, nothing good comes out of that. That's worse than even where I am. Well, Nathaniel has that very honest reaction. He's like, oh, gosh, Nazareth, really? place stinks. Nothing good can come out of there. What does Philip say? He says, well, just come and see. Like, listen, I can't convince you. Just come and see. Well, when Jesus sees Nathanael approaching, right, he sees him approaching and he looks at him and he says this, here is a true Israelite in which there is nothing false. Now, seems like an odd statement. Um, And it's actually going to tie into the very end of this chapter. And and Jesus is making a reference, and he's going to make a bigger reference in a minute that we'll talk about in 51, to Genesis 25 to 28. He's making a reference to the story of Jacob. Um, Jacob, as you may remember, maybe you don't, Jacob was, um, historically, was a bit of a schemer. He stole his brother's birthright. He convinced his brother essentially to sell it to him, and then he tricked his father, Isaac, into uh, believing that he was actually his older son, Esau, and Isaac gave Jacob the blessing that belonged to Esau. And, and, and Jacob has this sort of reputation historically for most of his life of being someone that was deceitful. And so when Jesus says, here comes uh, Nathaniel, here comes a, an Israelite in which there is nothing false, the actual translation there is which there is nothing that is deceitful, all right? 
And he's making a reference because he's going to tie it in to the character change that happens in Jacob. And Jacob is known as the schemer. He steals his brother's birthright. He steals his brother's blessing. Esau eventually flips out and tries to kill him, and Jacob takes off. And Jacob takes off, and he's running from him, and God appears to him in a dream. And in that dream, which I'll talk about in a minute, God essentially says, I am no longer against you, but I am with you. And that changes Jacob's character completely. And in fact, after that, God gives him a new name. He says, you are no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. And so Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, here comes a true Israel. He's speaking about his character. He's saying, here's someone who's coming in which there is nothing deceitful. In other words, this is a true believer, an Israelite believer, right? There's no deceit in you. And you're coming to talk to this guy from, you know, Nazareth. And it speaks about your character. Well, whatever happened there really moved Nathaniel's heart. Because Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Now, I don't know what Nathaniel may have been thinking. I don't know the depth of their interaction. But in those words where Jesus says, here comes a true Israelite in which there is no deceit or nothing false, something resonated deeply within Nathaniel, almost like you know my character. And he says to him, how do you know me? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip even came and called you. So Jesus looks at him and says, you think I know your character. I know where you were. I saw you before Philip even spoke to you. In other words, Jesus says, I know you and I have always known you. Both your character and your location. This is a a miracle moment in which Jesus is speaking to Nathaniel. I know your character, your true identity, and I know where you were when no one else knows where you were, right? And Nathaniel is deeply moved by that, right? Because that's pretty incredible. He's deeply moved, and he says, Rabbi, or teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So, so whatever happens, that interaction moves Nathaniel's heart to understand why Philip said what he said, that we have found the one that Moses talked about, the one that the prophets and the law was written about. We have found him. And Nathaniel says, yes, you have. He has spoken and he knows my character. He knew my location. He knows me and has always known me. And he looks at him and he says, Jesus, not only are you a teacher, but you are the Son of God and the King of Israel, which are two more messianic titles. And John has given us a plethora of messianic titles in this. We've called Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lamb of God, right? The King of Israel, the Son of God. In a minute, we're going to see him referenced as the Son of Man. John is setting us up to show us that Jesus is God, right? And he says, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, listen, Nathaniel, you believe because you saw under the fig tree that I saw you. You shall see greater things than that. And he added, I will tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says, you believe now because I spoke to you about your character and I told you that I knew you and that I've seen you and you believe, but I'm going to tell you something. You are going to see greater things. And then he opens a conversation to a little bit broader audience, not just at Nathaniel, and he kind of invites Philip and whoever else, I guess you and I as part of the readers, he says, listen, you are about to see something incredible. You are going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, to really understand this, you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 28. When Jacob flees Esau trying to kill him because he stole his birthright and stole his, brother, his father's blessing, he flees, right? And he's running for his life. And God appears to him in a dream. And in that dream, Jacob sees this stairway or this ladder going from earth to heaven, okay? Okay. And standing at the top of the ladder is God himself, God Almighty. 
And he is saying to Jacob, I am your father's God. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And he essentially says, the land that you're sitting on, I have promised to them and I am giving to you and your descendants. And on that ladder, Jacob saw angels going from heaven to earth, heaven to earth, back and forth. And when he woke up, he said, surely this place, this land is from God. God has given this to us. And essentially what God is doing is he's shifting his favor to Jacob. And Jacob calls that place Bethel, which means house of God. And he says, this is God's land. And his character at that moment changes for the rest of his life. He's had an encounter with God and it changed him. In fact, God changes him so deeply, that character change is so real that in a few chapters he gives him a name and he says, I'm no longer going to call you Jacob. I'm going to call you Israel. And he changes his character in that moment. And Jesus is referencing all this that's happening in, in Genesis. And he basically says, you will see greater things. All right? And I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But the reference is this. No longer is the ladder going from heaven to earth. But Jesus says this. He says, you will see, right? Heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of of man. So Jacob's dream, angels are ascending and descending from heaven to earth. But Jesus says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on me. Essentially, he's saying, I am the link between heaven and humanity. I am the one that will bridge the gap to the Father. And these are the things that you are about to have your eyes open to. And he calls himself the Son of Man, which is the first reference we see to this. And Jesus actually uses this as a reference to himself. Only one of the time in Scripture does anybody else refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. He usually refers to himself. And it's actually a messianic prophecy that comes out of Daniel chapter 7. I'm just going to read it to you so you can kind of hear it. Um, but essentially it says this. Daniel has this vision, right? And he says, in this vision I had at night, I looked, and there before me was one who was like a son of man. He was coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, which is God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations of every language and tribe worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and the kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And, and Jesus says, essentially, that is me. I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. And with that... Chapter 1 comes to a close. And John makes this incredible connection from Jesus just being the deity to Jesus being the access point to eternal, holy, mighty, magnificent God. Chapter 1 is deeply theologically rich. It's rich because what John wants us to see is that this is no ordinary teacher wandering around trying to culturally turn the world upside down by saying things that are different, like the first shall be last or, you know, turn the other cheek or all those things that our society sort of gloms onto about Jesus. But instead he's saying, actually, this person was not a traveling teacher. He was God of the flesh, and he came to do something much more significant than teach us how to change our lives. He came to redeem us to wash away and take away the sin of the world. He is the bridge between heaven and earth. He is God, right? And as I look at this text, there's some, there's some things in here that I want us to anchor our hearts to that I think are worth mentioning. And I don't want to do too much with them because uh, the point of what John is doing is, is much deeper than what I'm, I'm going to mention this morning. But I just think they're, they're too important to pass up. 
The first one is this. We saw it last week and we see it this week is that we see a very intentional connection between the person-to-person testimony about who Jesus is. So in the first, last week, we saw Andrew get his heart changed by Jesus, and he goes and he finds his brother Simon and says, Simon, you got to meet this guy. Simon comes, and, and Jesus has this incredible interaction with him and gives him a new name. Philip, in our chapter today, or our text today, has this incredible interaction with Jesus. And he's so stirred that he says, i got, I got to go tell Nathaniel, my good friend or my brother. And he goes and finds Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we found him. The one, the one that Moses talked about, the one that all the law and the prophets talked about, I've got to have you meet him. What we see is this really cool, incredible person-to-person picture of how the gospel is shared or how the person of Jesus Christ is introduced to someone else. And I really make mention of that because our culture today has, well, the, the idea of the person or the individual is somewhat of a throwaway concept. So if you think global corporate culture, right, the idea of the individual in terms of, in, in the eyes of business or corporate culture is, is really a meaningless idea. We talk about people in terms of viewers or listeners, or we talk about an ROI, return on investment, or advertisers, or, or what we get for our dollar. How many millions upon millions of this, or how many millions upon millions of hits or views or ideas, and, and general individuals are lumped into large categories to try and get the most return on our investment dollar. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, I'm just stating a fact. That is our global corporate culture. You do not matter. You matter as a demographic, 18 to 30, 18 to 25. You matter as advertising dollars. You matter as concepts. But you don't matter as an individual. No one here should be surprised about that. Right? We're targeted because our global corporate culture does that. And that's how business works. I deeply believe that spills over into our Christian culture as well. For a lot of our Christian culture, the idea of the individual is somewhat meaningless. We use the same, same statistics and stat lines to define our churches. How many members? How many attenders? How many baptisms? How many people were saved? If we hold a service and only 15 people come or only 100 people come or maybe only 1,000 people come, was that on some level a failure because we had double that last year? Our churches talk in the same culture and ideal that the global corporate culture talks about. How many people can we reach with this investment of dollars? If we have an event, the goal is as many as we possibly can, right? We want to get the greatest return on our spiritual and monetary investment as a Christian corporate culture. It's part of our mentality now. It's grown into us. The problem with that, of course, is that in the economy of heaven, the one matters. You cannot read scripture and miss this. In the economy of heaven, the individual matters. Jesus tells all of these parables about going after the one, the lost sheep, the lost coin. He tells all these parables about how the one matters. Jesus is constantly stepping off to the side and meeting with the marginalized person, the deaf person, the broken person, the crippled person, the person that has been thrown away, the woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, story after story after story of Jesus meeting face-to-face with the one, even his resurrection appearances, are Jesus meeting with individuals a lot of times. The guy's on the road to Emmaus. A thousand better resurrection appearances, right? To hover over Jerusalem and be like, hey, I'm still here. You couldn't get rid of me, right? Telling everybody. But instead, he walks on the road with these two guys that are sad and broken. In the economy of heaven, the one matters. And we see that evidenced here. Jesus meets with Andrew. 
and the unnamed disciple. And that person, Andrew, goes and finds the one that he cares about. And we see it happen with Philip. Jesus walking to Galilee, interacts with Philip. Philip's heart is so changed that he goes and finds Nathaniel, the one that he cares about. One-to-one testimony about Jesus is central to the gospel story. And our churches, somewhere along the way, have lost this. And I say that because this, our concept of evangelism is done on mass scales, right? It's how we think about it. We're going to do church in the park and try to meet as many people as we can. Millions and millions and millions of dollars have been spent within our church culture to develop programs and resources and video curriculums and things and tracks and evangelicubes and testaments and all these things that you can buy on the counter at Mardell's, right? To try and figure out how to tell as many people as we possibly can about Jesus. Now hear me say, there's nothing wrong with telling a lot of people about Jesus. But along the way, we've lost what is really true and real biblical evangelism. And it's not a mass-produced system or idea. It is you, right? It is you telling someone else about Jesus because Jesus has changed you and you want that person to know him. Now, that definition of evangelism will save us millions of dollars because here it is. Evangelism is you telling another person about Jesus because Jesus has changed you and you want that person to know Jesus. That's it. It is not more complicated than that. Andrew and Philip do just that. I met Jesus. He changed me. I went and told someone I love because I want them to know Jesus. In the Bible, person-to-person evangelism movements are because people had their life changed by Jesus and they want other people to know Jesus. And that's as complicated as it gets. See, the problem with evangelism, right, is not the how. It's that we don't want to. It's just true. It's not the how. The how is Jesus changed me. He rescued me. He saved me. I was dying. I was on a disastrous life. He has changed me and he has saved me. And he has called me to tell people that I know, meet, or love in any of those categories about him. And then let them know that I want them to meet Jesus. I don't have to have a formula or all the answers. Both Philip and Andrew's simple explanation was we found the one. I don't even know how to describe it. I, I, I want you to meet him. The problem with evangelism is not how. The problem is we just don't want to. And we have all kinds of excuses, right? Like, I don't have the gift, or, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, or I don't want to be seen as intolerant, or, or that's just not what I do. They're just excuses. The truth is, is that if Jesus has really changed our lives, and we would want the people that we know, or just people to know him. And we have churches that are filled with taglines like, we love people. And we could spend every dollar we have going and sending it over and doing mission by giving clothes to those that don't have clothes, by feeding those that don't have food. And if we never tell someone about Jesus, we're liars. We're just liars. Because I don't really love you. I don't really love you if I just give you clothes. I don't really love you if I just try and give you food. All I'm simply trying to do is make myself feel somewhat better about the life that I live. If I truly love you, eventually I'm going to tell you about the God that changed me. Because true love begins by saying, I have the key, the knowledge to eternal life and abundant life here on earth, and I'm going to give you a pair of pants instead. 
How does that work? Here's a ladle of soup. Yes, that's great. But at some point in time, we have to begin to tell people about Jesus. If we truly are going to be a church or the church big C that loves people, then we can't just give things away. We eventually got to say, look, Jesus changed me and we want you to know him. And that's pretty much what this is all about. I give you pants because I want you to know Jesus. It's my opportunity to tell you about Jesus, right? We're liars if we say we love people, but we don't talk about Jesus. We just love the idea of people. If we really loved people, we'd want to tell them about the God that saved us. Now listen, this is it's hard to say, but it's just true. This goes for the people in your life. If you really love your brother, and I'm talking about your biological brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your cousin, if you really love those people, would you not want to be like Philip and Andrew? At the, the moment that you meet Jesus, do you want to go and, and give them that? But yet 12 years go by, we still can't muster to send that email or that phone call or, or invite them into that space in our hearts? How in the world can we possibly say we love people and yet be afraid or ashamed to tell them about the God that's changed us? At some point in time, that conviction has got to become real enough to change our behavior. Look, I'm just as bad as anybody else. My faith in Christ is a faith of convenience, just like yours. But if we really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it should change all that completely. So the first thing I want you to understand is that this person-to-person idea is really important. In the economy of heaven, the one matters. That means the bank teller, the barista at Starbucks, the lady that checks you out at the grocery store, that person matters to the Lord. And this should matter to us as the church. And the one matters. And if we do all of this, if we plant something from nothing and we work really hard and all this, and one person comes to meet Jesus, then in the economy of heaven, it's worth everything. Right? Every dollar, every effort, everything is worth one in the economy of heaven because the idea of obedience is where this is central to. God, we do because... You call us to, and you changed us, and we want people to know you. I'll speed this up. We've got a couple of things to do this morning. But the second thing that I want you to see is that, that Jesus knows you. Now, I know this is really, I mean, we know this, right? But this incredible interaction he has with Nathaniel is, is amazing to me. Nathaniel is such a skeptic. He's like, what a trash heap Nazareth is, right? Philip, buddy, they, don't, they can even read or whatever. I don't know what they do, but they're not coming good out of there. And he walks up to Jesus, and Jesus says something that speaks into his character. And it's almost as if it's something that only Jesus and Nathaniel really understand, because on paper, it doesn't jump off to us. But it's a connection between Genesis and Jacob and true identity. And, and maybe Nathaniel was one of the, one of the honest character guys in a, in a world that was very characterless. But whatever Jesus says speaks to him. And it causes Nathaniel to say, how, how do you know me? Like, how do you know my heart is what he's essentially saying. How do you know my character? And Jesus says, man, I knew you before Philip even came over to you. Like, I've known you, and I've always known you. And Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. Like, that interaction is really powerful because what Jesus is saying is, Nathaniel, I, I know you. And I want you to understand this. Like, Jesus knows you. And I know that we all sit here and we nod and we go, no, no, I know. Jesus Jesus knows me. He knows what I've done. But listen, the truth is that most of us say we know that, but we live something completely different. 
We live as if God doesn't know the deepest recesses of our heart and soul and our mind. Because we live that way with each other, right? We don't let each other in those crevices and cracks and places. The secret doubts, the real things, the deep sin, the things that we say or do or think that we wish never entered into our lives or our minds, the places in the deepest places of our heart that say, God, I don't even know, and we're not a, we don't want to say those things out loud. But the truth is that if Jesus knows our character, and he knows who we are, and he knows us, and he's always known us, and he knows our physical whereabouts and our life and our mind and all those things, then he knows the deepest recesses of your heart, and he knows your failures, and he knows your doubts, and he knows your lack of trust, and he knows the fact that you're sitting here saying, I want to be anywhere but here. He knows all that. And yet we pay lip service to God and pretend that he doesn't. And we say, Lord, I, I'm trying really hard, and God, you know that, and things are just really busy right now, and God's going, I know your heart. You're petrified. You're afraid of what giving yourself completely to me looks like. And so you tell me how hard you're working because you think it's what I want to hear. This is how we treat the God that knows everything in our lives. If we truly knew and believed that God knows, then we would bear our honest heart before him. God, I am running. God, I am angry. God, I am sad. God, I am broken. You know it already. I'm not going to hide it from you. Take this. Remove this. Rescue me. Look, God knows already that you are afraid. He knows that you are fearful and you are riddled with lack of trust. He knows that you are worried and anxious. He knows that you are afraid of releasing your money, your stuff, your children, your marriage, your singleness, whatever to him. He knows that. So quit telling him you're trying and start crying out to him saying, God, I'm stuck and I am broken and I am afraid. What's incredible about scripture is that God can handle your biggest questions. He already knows them. We've got to bring our honest heart to him and say, God, I am on a full run from you. And I'm running because I'm afraid, and I'm running because I can't trust you, and I'm running because you took something from me, or I feel like you did, and I'm really hurt by it, and I don't know what to do. And the promise of scripture is never that Jesus will give you every answer you want to hear ever. But the promise is that Jesus knows you. And as we just talked about, you matter to him. The one matters. You matter to the Lord. He knows your heart and you matter to him. And he came for you, right? It's the whole heartbeat of the gospel of John, that Jesus loves you and he came for you. So the, the one matters, person to person matters, and Jesus knows you. And then finally, he says this to Nathaniel and Philip and, and really to you and I. He says, listen, you, you call me the son of God and the king of Israel because I said I saw you under the fig tree, right? You, you, you said that you believe these things because I've, I've told you some pretty miraculous things. I told you I know your character. I told you I knew where you were, and so you proclaim these things. But let me tell you something. You are going to see greater things. He goes, basically, the simple thing is that I just told you where you were. And I told you that I know your heart, but what I'm going to show you if you surrender your life to me is going to blow your mind. And I don't think that Jesus is talking about just miracles. I mean, certainly he probably is, but I don't think he's just talking about feeding 5,000 or walking on water or, or this miracle we're going to see next week where he changes water to wine. I don't think he's really talking about those being greater things. I think he's alluding to that in 51 where he says, you are about to see the heavens, the God of the universe, open up to you through me. 
that you are going to have access to Almighty God, that I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die and be raised, and you are going to have access to Creator God through me. You think seeing you under a fig tree is great? Wait till I open up all of heaven to you and redeem you. You are going to see greater things. Now, God still does the miraculous. Make no mistake about it. God still moves. God still does incredible things. But knowing your heart and knowing where you sit are tiny compared to the fact that God has given you access through Jesus Christ to his eternal and incredible glory. And not only that, but he has given you the promise of abundant life today. Not just when you die, but as you draw breath, this moment is open to you because the God of the universe has rescued your soul through Jesus, and it has come down through the Son of Man. He says, Philip, Nathaniel, followers of Christ, you, Trev, everybody here, I am going to blow you away with what is open to you through a relationship with me. Most of us really reduce our Christian life down to a few things that we think we can do here that God will kind of do with us or open up to us or a few miracle moments. We forget that God has opened the floodgates of grace. He's opened the floodgates of heaven. He is accessible through Jesus Christ. No matter what you've done, how many, big, how many mistakes, how big they are, all those failures, all those doubts, all those things are completely washed in the blood of Jesus. And you have access to holy, majestic, mighty God because Jesus became your sin so that you might become his glory. These are the greater things. And we reduce that to 55 minutes, or if you come here, an hour and 20 minutes on a Sunday morning, right? And this table, guys, is the incredible picture of all of these things poured out. This table, this communion that we celebrate really is the remarkable, hey, look, there's window. Put it right there, my friend. You guys met Wendell yet? Wendell's, uh, he's our associate pastor at Church in the Park on Wednesday. Love Wendell. Thank you, brother. This meal that we share really is that proclamation of those true things. It is the expression of Jesus pouring his life out so that we can have access to holy, majestic, and mighty God. On the very night that he was betrayed, John's gospel actually is going to spend two-thirds of its time focused on this week alone. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. In the same way, after he took bread, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming Christ's death and resurrection until he comes again. This morning we're taking communion by means of intention. What that means is that as you feel called or led, you can come down front. It'll be stationed in the back too. Take a piece of bread and dip in the cup and eat it. We, we ask you and encourage you to spend time with the Lord. Focus your heart before you stand up and come down and take part in this meal. But say, God, here are my fears and failures. Here's my honest heart before you. You know me, and I lay myself out before you. After you finish, we invite you to continue standing as Don and our worship team Lead us in worship this morning. I invite our servers to come forward this morning as we go before the Lord. Let's pray together. God, you are infinitely amazing. You are beyond all of our understanding. You are incredible. You are miraculous and mighty and holy. God, you have moved in us. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together these simple elements of bread and cup that you have 
done something miraculous and mysterious to nourish our souls and to draw us into your presence. Lord, as we close our time in worship, may your truth and words ring true that you are the Son of God, that you are the access point to eternal, mighty, holy, majestic God, that, God, you are the Son of Man, that you know us, and that our entire call in life is just to tell people what you have done. So, Lord, hear our cry of worship, hear our cry of truth, hear our honest hearts as we close our time worshiping you and taking this meal together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you feel called and as the band leads us in worship, we invite you to come forward this morning or back. <laughs>